Father, as we're gathered together this morning, we pray that these words, this story, would be helpful to us, that it would remind us of your goodness, your care, your provision, your promises that we are inheritors of. Amen. It's an interesting story about a commitment, isn't it? And it sort of revolves around a covenant or a promise between God and a man. And quite an important thing to understand is that God is making a serious commitment. But it also makes me think about the ways in which we hold on to those covenant promises in our lives. Some of us will have taken various oaths about our work. I know that there are at least three doctors in this congregation. They would have taken oaths. No, some of them are, some of them are shaking their heads. No, they didn't. Um, but anyway, <laughs> there are oaths about how they perform and what they do to guide their thinking. I used to be a police officer. There were oaths about how I would do things. I remember the line, without favour or affection, without malice or ill will. It's changed in 2005, but when I took it, it, it governed how I was to be with people in circumstances. But we take, we, some of you may have been in court for one reason or another, who knows, um, and, but we make oaths when we're in court about the witness, the truth of what we say. Our testimony is bound by certain standards uh, and so that's significant, isn't it? We, we judge things by people's willingness to sign up to uh, what they sign up to. But in our daily lives, in our working lives, in our uh, ordinary going about, our business, we make all sorts of, form all sorts of little covenants in forms of contracts, our working contracts. If you buy a rail ticket, it is your acceptance of their terms for travel. It's a long document. You wouldn't want to print that off every time you bought a ticket. It just assumes that you've read the rules. How that covenant takes shape, how a promise takes shape, and of course, some of us are married. We made some vows there, and they hold together, don't they? And that's important, because how, how we um, uh, live out that promises, those promises are about who we are and who we've made the promise with. So here, God has come to make a promise. This is God Almighty coming to make a promise with an ordinary man who, as we followed his story, we have seen sometimes makes some bum decisions and sometimes risks other people's safety. God is willing to work with all sorts of people. So far, Abram hasn't really stood out as somebody who gets it right all the time. In fact, we're 13 years after one of the biggest mess-ups that he's made, one of the most divisive things he's done in his household. And I guess the, 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 the truths of those promises that, were, that God had made with him all that time ago, all that time ago when he was still in the land of Ur, maybe they're starting to fade Maybe as we go on, the truths of those promises, because that person doesn't seem near, don't matter so much. And so we find that God has come into his household again when Abram was 99 years old. The Lord appeared to him. And he focuses on who they each are. Contracts are between party A and party B, and they describe who you are. 
Party A in this case is God, and he introduces himself as the Lord Almighty, El Shaddai, the mighty mountain, the one you can't move, the one in whom you can be safe, the one you can trust, but I am God. He's absolutely certain about that. So it's about God's character, because what we see in this covenant isn't a lot of small print. This isn't the contract with 15 pages of print you can't read. This is about, I am me and you are you. Let's work together. Let's see what, we, what, see what can happen. So God comes and he's making that personal commitment to Abram, which is important. God is a personality. He's a personality with his thoughts and ideas and attitudes and the capacity to love and change and accept things in ways that we don't necessarily understand or grasp. It's not a computer program or an algorithm or just a set of ideas. We're, we're engaging with a person. And so he comes to talk to Abram about his covenant. And he says these two uh, important phrases here. Walk before me and be blameless. Good luck with that. <laughs> Walk before me. What a lovely phrase. Walk before me. I used to think it meant walk in front of me, and every time you're about to step out of line, uh, I'll, trip, I'll, tr I'll catch you. Um, if your children have ever walked a bit pigeon-toed, then you walk behind them and you sort of catch their foot. I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't be saying this. But <laughs> when you just sort of watch them, you say, no, you're walking. Your, your feet are turning in. Your feet are turning in. You don't need to do that. I used to think God might be like that that he was watching me, where I was going, and before, after I'd done something, he was going to land a, you know, crack one on me and say, no, that's not how you do it. But the words are about, to, you know, in my presence. Walk in my presence. Be aware that I am there. Walk towards my face. Seek me in your daily life. Seek me as you go. Walk before me. Find me. Paul says in his great speech at the Areopagus, he wants to be found. Walk before me, I'm there. And I find that really powerful, and it's a healthy reminder for those of us who perhaps who've sort of grown up with lots of criticism uh, or, or sort of fear of failure. Here is God saying, no, walk with me. I'm willing to be with you. That's the, that's the underlying thing, isn't it? I want to be with you. Walk with me. That was, the, that was the essence of the Genesis story as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. It was something he wanted to do. It's something he enjoyed doing. It takes us back again to our relationship with God. And then to be blameless. Well, that is a tricky thing, isn't it? The other two people so far in the Bible described as being blameless are Enoch and Noah, who lived lives holy complete in God's eyes, whose lives were so complete. Enoch was so complete, God said, you can come and be with me straight away. Death won't be a door for you. Come along. You're so whole and complete already. You're with me. Come and be with me. And Noah's life was marked out as being whole and complete before God and man. Called to be blameless whole. That means, that's really important because sometimes we can say, well, we can compartmentalize our lives. We can say, right, this is Sunday and I will look all shiny and wonderful and gracious on Sunday, but tomorrow's Monday and then there's a five more days after that before I need to look shiny and wonderful again. 
But actually what he's saying is be whole. Accept that the whole of your life is something that I'm interested in. See that I want to do things with you in all areas of your life. You think about that, and if Noah was called blameless and he kept on doing this enormous project, all the criticism and stuff that he would have faced, it wasn't just about those moments where God was with him. It's about those, those moments when he was explaining what he was doing. It was about trying to handling the ridicule of people saying, this is going to take forever, mate. He said, yeah, but God's called me to, told me to do it. About being obedient in all areas of our lives. So God says these two important parameters about how we are to be. Walk before me and be blameless. You're going to be in my presence and you are going to be blameless. Everything about you is something I want to be part of. That's great news for us. That's really good news for us today. And so Abraham then comes to this point and, and, and he's... God says, okay, well, look, look, look at this. Um, I'm confirming my covenant, my covenant with you, says God. Sorry, not Abraham. I'll confirm my covenant, and I will greatly increase your numbers. Now, he's speaking straight into the apparent problem, which for 13 years now, they've been waiting for this promised child. And, of course, they've got Ishmael uh, in the household. We talked about that last week. And Ishmael um, is, is part of it, this household. But he doesn't seem to be the one that was promised. Remember, the angel of the Lord came and said, there'll be another one. Ishmael's not the one of the blessing. There'll be another one. And then we get down to brass tacks, don't we? In verse 4, God said to him, as for me. So the parties are starting uh, to uh, destroy, uh, lay out uh, what they are going to do. God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant. You will be a father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. He's going to change your name, not just from exalted father, but to father of many. Really important. So his identity is now taking shape within God's purpose. Do you remember when, I, when we started looking at the story of Abram? I said that Abram would find his identity within his walk with God. That God would show him the places where he wanted to be. The beginning and the end of his journey, the way of explaining what he was doing in his life, was going to be God. God is outside of Abram. He's outside of us in lots of ways. He's external, isn't he? He's an external influence on our lives. Abraham here is to find that God will be doing things with him in partnership. So Abraham's way of understanding himself isn't just, this is who I am, but I'm who I am because of God. God is speaking to him, directing him, encouraging him, sometimes telling him off, sometimes putting his mistakes straight. But he is no longer on his own. He's no longer responsible for everything himself. But he's also uh, in God's plan. So it's important. And then uh, we come to this, uh, this sign of this promise, this sign of this covenant, is that this whole land, this whole covenant promise is going to be signified by circumcision. They're going to have a physical sign to themselves of God's promise on them. It's only for men, thankfully, not for women. That would be horrendous. Okay? And it's an interesting thing because most other nations practiced circumcision. 
Nearly all other nations did. It's recorded in some other ancient uh, book that the Philistines, the sea peoples, were considered strange because they didn't circumcise at this time. All other nations did for sort of basic hygiene reasons. But for Abram, it's going to be a sign of the covenant. It's going to be a mark in him, on his flesh, that God has interacted with him, that he's bound into this covenant. I guess you get the idea when you see those films, don't you, where people make a blood brother and they slip a little bit of, cut their palm and they shake hands and they've shared blood. It's, a, it's that sense of we are bound by this now. We've made a sign. We've made some kind of binding commitment to it. And that would be part of it. But the commitment would be that God has got a sign. He's made a sign for me in my life. He's signifying. There's a mark, if you like, a signature on this contract. And so what does it bind him to do? Well, he commits uh, to others. This whole household, this whole household is going to be uh, circumcised. They're going to come into this covenant. And that means that Abram's going to have to explain himself and lead these people according to the things that God is saying him. He's not going to just be able to say, I'm going to do this, because his relationship with God needs to now flow into these these people that he's responsible for, his, his wife his family that will come, the household, the foreigners who will be brought in. And then beautifully, God says, this commitment is not just to you and your household, it's to your descendants. It will be to your descendants. And my promise is, I will be their God too. I will be their God too. He is your God too because of this promise. I will be their God. He is committed to us before we even appeared and started messing things up. That he made his commitment there. That is a deep sign of love to be able to say, I will love them. And I know some of you have done that because the whole idea of uh, is we take people on and we commit to loving them from the start. We don't have... God doesn't seem to have these sort of clauses, these what they call prenup clauses in his contract in, that you see in marriages, in some marriage contracts amongst celebrities. He's got, I will love you. I will be your God. He doesn't do that. He takes on that commitment straight away. And so this sign is something that God wants Abram to take on. He wants him to accept and live in the light of that, and he will commit to living differently among the people around him. See, the people around him are Perizzites and Canaanites, country folk and city folk, but they had their own gods, but they were all basically fertility-type gods because food was their primary thing. And so in those sorts of cults, in that sort of worship, what you would do is you would bring your offering, you would do something in the temple, sometimes heinous, sometimes just an offering, And that God would then be kind of obligated to do what you had expected of them. Very interesting relationship with God. One that you sometimes see amongst modern Christianity. Well, I told God this, and he didn't do it. I asked God about this. I expected him to do it, but it wasn't God's plan. Didn't seem what... And we have all this sort of sense of disappointment with God because we're wanting him to do things our way. And this relationship with Abraham and God is turning that on its head and saying, no, the relationship you're going to have with me is you've made a promise with me and I am going to demonstrate my care for you all through your life. I've committed to that. 
The Canaanite world was, what do you need? What do you need? Very commercial. You think about it. We, th- we, th- we talked about this sort of the worship at Ur. It was all about throwing gold at a god until he gave you what he wanted. Don't let that stop you at the collection, by the way. <laughs> but it's about, it's about the relationship that he wants to have. Trust that I'm already for you. Canaanites were trying to win their God's favor. God is saying, I'm already for you. Is that clear? Is that helpful? That God chooses to act towards their, for their kindness, for their good, from the outset. And then we have this thing about committing to trust. And it's really interesting conversation that, that goes on. Sorry, the, it goes on about circumcision rather too much for my fancy. Uh, so we go straight forward to verse 17. And Abraham's response is he falls face down and laughs. And laughs. He's heard these promises. And he's overwhelmed. But he's kind of overwhelmed with, well, unbelief really. He's just like, this, this is incredible. This isn't really believable. Because he says to himself, will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And Abraham even appears to doubt in his heart. He is face down worshipping God because that's the best place to be when God turns up in the room. But, but in his heart are doubts. In his heart is fears. In his heart are these sense of, well look, it's been 13 years so far and you haven't been that good yet. You haven't made good on it so far. Somewhere in him is this doubt. And I think it's honest, isn't it? That Abraham this great character of faith is even articulating in his heart, I'm not sure about this, how can that really be? And yet he's prepared to fall face down. And I think that's an honest moment. I think probably sometimes we come, well, maybe often we come to church and we've got doubts and anxieties and fears, but we're also able to say to God, well, here I am, here's the other stuff, but I'm bringing that with me as well. Here's the other stuff that I'm not sure about. I can't handle, but I'm here. And I think that's where Abraham is. I think that's where Abraham is, because he's got these circumstances around him. He's got Ishmael to think about. And I wonder if we're honest sometimes when we come to to God like that. I was at a, a, a conference yesterday about mental health in churches. And the speaker said... One in four people, adults in the UK, suffer some kind of mental well-being issue. One in four. He made us, one in four of us, stand up. I'm not going to do that now. But one in four of us stand up and say, wow, okay. Around the room are people who may have, who've got doubts and anxieties that are overwhelming them who've got issues that are overwhelming them, but they are still coming to God. And I wonder how we as a church are able to articulate and speak and love in ways that are helpful. It was a very powerful moment. Just look around the church now. Don't point fingers, please. But one in four, and if I've made you feel uncomfortable, I'm sorry. One in four of us. That's quite, a, that's quite an important thing, isn't it? But Abraham is able to come to God and say... I'm still here. I don't get it, but I'm here because you're good. And then it's God's answer, isn't it, that really shifts things. And he says, 
If only Ishmael live under your blessing. And then verse 19, yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son. And you will call him Isaac. Now some of you will know that Isaac in Hebrew, Ishak, means he laughs. He laughs. You will call him he laughs. You know, I said earlier about how God is looking for us to discover him. He's kind of set this kind of time bomb party balloon. When you discover what, how good I am to you, you will remember that I laughed. That I have great joy in bringing these things to you. And yes, there are promises for Ishmael and I will look after him. But the blessing and the things that I want to happen will come through this one called Isaac. And, he will, and I'll, you will call him, he laughs, to remind you of my joy in doing this. And your joy at discovering who I really am. And I think that's wonderful. And I think it's a beautiful story. He helps them. And if you think about Abram and Sarah in the community that they lived and worshipped in and the household that they had around them, then suddenly this boy comes from nowhere because like Sarah is getting on now. A woman of 90. The whole community is going to be you know, a witness to the people around them. The whole community is going to say, you know what? The Canaanites are going to be saying, you know what? That old, that old geezer, Abram, just had a kid. Would you believe it? Can you imagine that? The, the work of God was so profound in their community and so rich, the people around them were talking about it. That would be good, wouldn't it? That's what we want to be. Where the work of God was so profound and real, the people around us talked about it. That they said, hey, you know what? Those people who are following that God, that we've been, you know, the one that doesn't ask us to sort of... Uh, that's, they're, they're really seeing stuff happen because he's good to them. And he's trusting, uh, and they're trusting in him. So it makes us think, doesn't it, really? Um, the joy of God in making this deal with us, in committing to his relationship with us, the joy that it is to discover what he's done. We remember that he did this through Jesus Christ. I've, I've already talked about it but Colossians Paul says in Colossians when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh God made you alive in Christ he made you whole and to, with Christ the word alive there is quickened together with God because he when you put your trust in Jesus Christ he comes and he joins in and the circumcision is in your heart where it's, that's the sign of his indwelling in you and your acceptance of his promises over your life, being set aside for him. And our thinking and our attitude, how we live amongst one another, how we live in the world around us, what our commitment is like when we're on our, when we're on our own, it's all led by him because of his promises can then live in us. When his promises live in us, we are signs to other people. We are physical signs to other people. And how we interact, how we speak, how we react with one another, how we care for one another, how are we going to handle our older brothers and sisters who are afraid to come to church at the moment? Rightly so. They're being cautious. But how do we handle those anxieties in our brothers and sisters who are not sure? How are we going to show that love to them? And can we be honest 
with ourselves and Jesus Christ? Can we say, you know what, I didn't think you'd be able to do this. I sometimes think that's our deepest fear, that Jesus can't do it. Even in the gospel, at the end of Matthew's gospel, just before he ascends to heaven, the disciples gather and some of them doubted. What stuff were they bringing? Jesus, but Jesus carried on working with them. Because it's not wholly dependent on us. It's our obedience and his work. It's our obedience to what he's promised. It's his, his promises over us and our willingness to say, I'm going to go with that. I'm going to try that. I'm going to live by that. What else have I got? What have I got to lose? So we are in relationship. We can be in relationship with a God, God Almighty, who can do things, who can change things. Paul wrote to the church in Rome about Abraham. I've made you father of many nations, and Abraham is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed. The God who who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that are not. We come into a relationship with a God who can do more, immeasurably more, than we can ask or imagine, who calls us to trust him and put our lives in his hands. Really important at this time, but at all time, to know that we are in his hands. Shall we pray? Perhaps there are... uh, things that you just want to be quiet in your heart with God about. Abram fell down on his face and said to himself, he articulated his doubts and his fears. And maybe that's something you want to do now. And then we come to a time of confession. say the top bit and you can say the bottom bit. Father, we confess to you our selfishness and our lack of love. We've been focused on our own things, what's before us and not what you have for us. Lord, have mercy. Have mercy. Father, we confess to you our fears and our failure to share our faith, that around us live people who are dying to hear, literally dying to hear the good news of the resurrection in Jesus Christ. Christ, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Father, we confess to you our stubbornness and lack of trust. Thank you for your grace to Abraham, that you gave him grace, yes, I will, and truth, but it will be my way. Help us to trust you. Help us to lay our lives before you. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Well, Father, this is uh, our wonderful opportunity to just give thanks to you. We receive your forgiveness. We pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit by the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Pray that we would look to him that we've been reconciled to you through him.
that our sins have been forgiven and that our life can be whole. Amen. We're going to worship uh, the Lord. This is my desire to honour you.